Brethren, if any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness or a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if any man thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Different Greek word for burden in verse 2 and in verse 5. Slightly different idea as well. Father God, we thank you this morning for the worship. We thank you, God, who are, who is and was and always will be holy, holy, holy as Isaiah saw and as Isaiah heard those words he bowed his head and said, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And you took from the altar and you purged him and you cleansed him. And Father, for us to think this morning that a holy God who is a consuming fire allows us into his presence. God, we understand that it's by grace. We understand it's by your love and it's by your cleansing and by your forgiveness. And God, when you change us, you give us spiritual responsibilities to the body of Christ. And in this passage this morning, we see these mutual responsibilities. And so God, I pray today that you'll help us to understand them, reveal to us, God, areas that we need to grow in. And God, may we confess and may we repent and change our lives in accordance to your word. God, you be glorified by this. Father, God, you're teaching us, this church at North Valley, God, that if we will walk in the Spirit, if we will grow deep into your Word, God, the rest of the Christian life will happen naturally. And so today, God, help us to apply what we read. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You may be seated. I know you can. <laughs> well, the book of Galatians is like all of Paul's epistles, where he is heavy on doctrine in the first part of his letter, and then heavy in application in the second half of his letter. And doctrinally, we've been learning that the law has no power... And it can give no desire to live a godly life. We're reading and learning that by the law comes the knowledge of sin. By the law, sin is actually incited by the law. And that the harder we try in our flesh, the more likely we are to fail. The Galatians had started this Christian life very well. In fact, he says in this letter, he says, you were running well, who hindered you from obeying this truth? This persuasion doesn't come from the one who called you. 
They had been called by the grace of God, and they had replaced grace for works. And as a result, many of them were lapsing back into sinful behavior because they were trying to attempt to keep the law in their own strength. And so this part of the letter really fits into what he just said previously, and that is if you will walk in the Spirit, then you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For these two things are diametrically opposed. My flesh wants nothing to do of God. My flesh is at enmity with God. It's not subjective to the law of God, neither indeed it can it be. And so am I, if I'm trying to fulfill godliness by my own strength, by putting laws in front of me, I'm only setting myself up for failure. And the works that the flesh produces, Paul says, they are obvious, they are evident. And we looked at those four broad categories where our flesh will reveal itself. And the biggest category that Paul talked was our interpersonal relationships with one another. And then we see the evidence of what it means to be walking in step with the Holy Spirit. So we're to walk moment by moment under his control. And then if we are led by the Spirit, we are to keep in step. And the second time that he uses the word to walk, it's a military term, which means to walk in line and to line our lives up with what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. And if I am marching along that beat, then I know I am being led by the Spirit. And so in chapter 6, when he says, My brothers, if any one of you is overtaken by a trespass, restore such a one. He's talking about someone who has gone back to self-effort, was caught off guard, and begins to practice sin again. So we see there's a close connection between chapter 5 and chapter 6. By observing the law, we are actually living in our flesh. The law does not give us a desire, nor does it give us the power. But just the opposite. When we walk in the Spirit, it gives us the desire for the things of God. And it gives us the power of God. And then the Spirit gives us the impulses to follow so that we can be led by the Spirit of God. The Galatians had experienced and had known the power of the Spirit. They were now adopting a works-based relationship with God. And as a result, they were slipping back into sinful habits and patterns. The exact same thing is true if you're a believer this morning... And you might not be living under the works of the law, but you're trying to live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. And you're just trying to coast through the Christian life. And you're just as defeated. And so this passage is for us as well, even if though we're not putting ourselves under the legalism. Here's the responsibility. If you've got an outline um, in your bulletin. I'm going to try to follow it today. I'm not very good at it because I love chasing rabbits all over the place. But today I'm going to try to follow it a little bit closer so that you can 
at least take some notes and think about what and, and apply what's going on. But it, my first question is, what is the responsibility of every believer in this particular context? In this context of Galatians, what is it that Paul is saying every believer is responsible to do? In chapter 5, 16 through 26, this is a concise responsibility that Paul is saying in this context. The responsibility of every believer is to desire to live a Christ-like life. To show and to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That is Christ's likeness. That is our responsibility. It is our responsibility to walk under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That is a volitional act of our will to say, yes, I will submit to the Holy Spirit. To depend on the Holy Spirit for the power to live a Christ-like life. And then to step out in faith and to live that life. You and I can live the Christ-like life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is our responsibility. When this is fulfilled, we will bring all the infinite resources of grace. This is, ama- this is wonderful news. The gospel is good news, isn't it? We will bring all the infinite resources of grace to the aid of our lives and be able to put them in operation so that the virtues that only the Holy Spirit can produce, will be activated in our lives daily. That is our responsibility. That was a mouthful, wasn't it? I hope you had time to write some of that down. So that's our responsibility. Now, I want us to define our responsibilities by three imperatives in this passage. So if you'll go back to the text with me, and follow our outline, we're going to look for three imperative commands, and we're going to define what these responsibilities are. So you don't have to have a Greek New Testament with you. If you've got a good English translation, you'll be able to tell which ones are the commands. Brethren, if any man is overtaken in a fault, that doesn't sound like a command there, does it? It's a passive verb. It's not a command. You who are spiritual, restore. There's our first imperative. So one of the mutual responsibilities of every believer is to restore. We should have a heart for other people that desires their restoration. Let's go down to verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. Does that sound like an imperative to us this morning? It does. That's our second spiritual responsibility. Bear one another's burdens. In so doing, we'll fulfill the law of Christ. If any man thinks himself to be something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. We don't have any imperatives in that, do we? But, remember I was teaching a couple weeks ago, and when you see the word let, that's implying a command is going to follow it. So I hope you're using a good, literal Bible translation this morning. But let each one examine his own work. There's our third imperative. So we see that God has given you and I three mutual responsibilities. Well, two, and one of them is for our own lives. What were they? Restore others, bear with one another, and the only way that we can do that and do it in a godly way 
is by self-examination. You can't restore other people if you're not doing self-examination. You cannot bear other people's burdens if you are not first doing self-examination. So those are the responsibilities that you and I have been given in this passage. So let's look at what this command actually means. So we're just doing inductive Bible study methods this morning with a big group. What does restoration mean? It's a command, but the word literally means to make something ready for use. My mom used to go to Mr. Mumford's junk shop because he would just have all sorts of piles of treasures, and you'd have to dig through them. And they didn't work. None of it worked. And she could get it really, really cheap. But she had a friend who knew how to strip old lacquer off of, of stuff. And I'll never forget. I mean, every day I'd come home for lunch. And my mom, we only had one car growing up. I mean, Anybody in our neighborhood had two cars. Well, nobody in our neighborhood had two cars. Nobody had two bathrooms. Nobody had two phones. My kids, they complain, you know, about stuff that, man, that was a, that was a luxury. We didn't have a shower in our house. What was me? Yeah, I know. Okay. But anyway, my mom would get on her bike, and she had a big old basket. And she would bring all kinds of junk home. And, I mean, every day, I don't know how she would get it home. And the front yard would be all this stuff, and my dad would come home, and, oh, my goodness, what do we got today? And one day, she borrowed a truck from the neighbor, and there was this old couch. The thing, nobody ever sat on it. It was a horse-haired couch. (laughs) The horse hair would come up and poke you. I mean, it was so uncomfortable. But she would restore that. She never did restore that thing. It was never brought to where anybody ever wanted to use it. But that's what it means to restore something to bring it back so that you can use it. Now, I'm going to give you two biblical examples of where this word is used. It's used in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 21, I think it is, where Jesus passes by and he sees two brothers in the boat with their father Zebedee, and what were they doing? Katartidzo, same Greek word to restore. They were mending their nets. They were getting those nets ready to be used the next day. So our responsibility as believers is to find people who've been sidelined and to bring them back to a position where they can be used by God. That's going to happen to all of us, isn't it? So this is what it means. The other uh, context, the other time that this word was well, used quite often, but I thought another one that would be, help us to uh, illustrate this word is in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, And I'm actually going to use the ESV because the ESV says, Finally, brethren, rejoice. Aim for restoration. That's the way it's translated. The King James says, Be perfect. It's not talking about sinful perfection there, but being rounded and whole and being able to be used again. The New King James says, become complete. We need to take people who are broken and perfect them, get them ready for use, and make it our aim to restore them. Now, 
who is responsible to do the restoring? Again, we're going to just do some inductive Bible study. Who is responsible to do the restoring? Does anybody do this? Is everybody supposed to do this? Well, everybody's supposed to, but in this passage, who is qualified to do the restoring? Very good. People who are mature or those who are spiritual. Those are the ones who are supposed to do the restoring. Spiritual people. So let's look at this context. What does it mean to be spiritual in this context? How do we determine somebody who is spiritual? Is it somebody who has a lot of Bible knowledge? Somebody who's gone off to divinity school? Somebody who's got a Bible degree? Somebody who knows how to do inductive Bible study and they just know and they can quote verses? That is not in this context what it means to be spiritual. Now, it doesn't mean that those things can't help you become a spiritual person, but those things in themselves will not make anybody spiritual. The Holy Spirit is what makes people spiritual. That's what changes us. That's what transforms us. So to determine what's spiritual, we look at this context, and spiritual people are those who are not yielding to the immediate gratification of the flesh. You see somebody who is spiritual, and they have self-control. When they feel tempted to gossip, they button their lip. When they feel like they're going to judge somebody else, they control that. When they feel a sense of envy coming over them or covetousness, they say, I am not going to yield to that temptation. That's what it means to be a spiritual person. Somebody who can control their actions and the flesh does not dominate them. Secondly, to be spiritual means that you have the power through the crucifixion. A spiritual person is someone who's taken his passions and his desires and he has associated them on the cross and vicariously said, those things that I want to do, I will no longer do because I have nailed them to the cross of Jesus Christ. Those who are led by the Spirit are no longer under the law. And those, he, he goes on in chapter f- um, f- 5 and verse um, uh, 20, um, 24, he says, Those that are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. So you don't yield, and you've taken those desires, you've set them, you put them to the cross. And then thirdly, a spiritual person is someone who moment by moment is under the guiding influences and impulses of the leading and power of the Holy Spirit, and their lives will manifest the fruit. So if you want to know if you're spiritual, just look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and if those things are indicative of your life, then you are the one who is to be looking for others and being a restorer and bringing other people back to usefulness. Now, who is to be restored in this passage? Again, we'll just look at the Bible. It says, if any man, that's person, generic, is overtaken in any trespass. That's the person who needs to be restored. Now, let's just look at this, and we'll refer to the original language because it's helpful here. The tense is an immediate tense of something that wasn't ongoing, It wasn't something that happened and continues to perpetuate. It was something that happened on a once-off time. 
It's a passive verb, is overtaken, so it wasn't, it wasn't someone who was actively indulging in sin. It happened in a moment, and the Greek word is pro-lambano, which means to seize or to take beforehand. And so this person is someone who is just caught off guard, and sin hits them, it comes out of nowhere, and bam, when somebody who premeditates sin and someone who lives habitually in sin, that person is not under this category. That takes a different type of restoration. It takes a different type of work. It takes confrontation. It takes calling that sin out. So what Paul's talking about here is somebody who's lapsed back into legalism. Someone who's not walking in the Spirit. Someone who's not availing themselves to the power of the Holy Spirit moment by moment. And you know what? That's all of us in this room, isn't it? You can turn on a television and something flash across that screen and you are caught off. Or you can walk into a situation and all of a sudden your temper flares. You didn't premeditate it. You just got caught off and boom, you start to say things you shouldn't say. And that's the person that Paul is talking about. So now we know what it means to restore. We know who's to be doing the restoring. We know what it means for the one who's overtaken in a trespass. And the biggest thing that I want you to, to understand here, it's the person who's failing to avail themselves by the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that they didn't act in their own will. It doesn't mean that they didn't sin. It doesn't mean that they didn't decide to sin. But yes, they did all those things. It was like King David when he walked out on that roof that day. He wasn't planning adultery, but boy, there was Bathsheba. You contrast that with what he did to Uriah. He had Uriah set up for murder. And how did Nathan the prophet come to him? He didn't come to him gently. He told him a story that made David sick to his stomach. And then he pointed the finger at David. He says, David, you're the man. So there's a difference here. So how do spiritual people restore? Again, let's go to the text. How are we supposed to do this? It says we are to restore such a one, and here it is. The means is in a spirit. It's a little s. That means an attitude a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of meekness. That's how spiritual people restore. So spiritual people are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are walking in the Holy Spirit. And they have the virtues of the Holy Spirit, which is meekness, goodness, gentleness, kindness, self-control. That is how we are to restore people. Not like... I do often with my children. Sometimes I'm not too meek with them. Sometimes I'm not too gentle with them when they get caught into a, a temptation. But that's, and I'm not being very spiritual at that moment, am I? Okay, kids will do that to you. <laughs> now, one last question. Why? Are we to do it in a spirit of gentleness? We've got a negative answer here. Lest we also fall into temptation. I am to be meek. I am to be gentle. Why? Because I need to know my own vulnerability. 
And I don't need to be judgmental when I restore people. I don't need to be condescending when we restore people. Because we need to be under the understanding that I have feet of clay and I struggle with the exact same things that you're struggling with. Okay, let's go to our second command. The second command, the second responsibility is to bear burdens. The word to bear a burden has several ideas. To bear a burden. One, it means to bear with somebody's infirmities, someone's scruples, someone's weaker conscience or a weaker mind. That's the way it's used in Romans chapter 15 and verse 1. You who are strong, bear, the old King James says, with the infirmities. And that word means scruples or conscience or the, the, the easiness to get offended because your faith is weak. And we are to bear with those kind of people. We don't just incite them. If somebody has problems with a deck of cards in your house, and they come over to visit, well, get them out, you know. Don't flaunt it in front of them. And that's the idea. We're to bear with, if somebody has a problem with, with music or whatever it is, we who are spiritual, we need to understand that. And we need to be sympathetic to their areas of weakness. If they've got a weakness with, with, with alcohol, you're not going to go take them to a bar and say, hey, come on, let's go out and have a beer, buddy. No, that's ridiculous. So that's, what, that's one of the ways that this means. But in this particular context, I think it has another idea. And to bear with another person's burden, we just talked about somebody who's been overtaken by a trespass. They didn't plan it, and boy, they blew it. One of the biggest things that we can do to bear that burden is to help them get over the guilt complex. Stop beating yourself up. Be able to receive God's grace. Let me tell you how God can forgive you and leave it with God. Bear that burden with them. Another idea of this bearing this burden is the idea of helping them and then holding them accountable so that now they can be whole again. So a burden is a weight, an anxiety, it's a physical or an emotional need and this is to be reciprocal, bear one another's burdens. Now, before I move on, I want to just say one thing about why we're to restore people in a spirit of meekness. This is a verse that I put to memory a long time ago because it has to do with a pastor, particularly 2 Timothy 2.24. It says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive. The old King James. The new King James says, The servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome. Not quarrelsome. Not an arguer. But he must be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, less peradventure. Old King James, New King James says, perhaps God may grant them repentance. Now, to, for God to grant repentance, that doesn't mean that God is going to sovereignly, providentially grant them a change of heart against their will. That doesn't fit the context, does it? 
The context is that when we do it with gentleness and kindness, God then prepares the soil where it's so much easier to get things right. When somebody comes and they start pointing their finger at me and they start scolding me, my first reaction is to defend myself, even if I am wrong. But when people come to you gently and kindly, God then is providing the proper environment for you to get that thing right. And restoring one another should be done the exact same way. It's reciprocal. And what is accomplished when we bear one another's burdens? Let's go to the text. Let's don't answer it outside of the text. One of the things I hate in Bible study, I'll ask a question, and then somebody will pull something out of the moon. (laughs) We're not going to do that. So to bear one another's burden, what does it fulfill? Let's look at the text. This isn't complicated. This isn't, you know, deep stuff. This is just Bible teaching. Bear one another's, and what is accomplished And so fulfill the law of Christ. Now we have to look for some meaning, aren't we? Fulfill the law. Grammatically, what does that mean? It's Christ's law. It's a Christ-like law. So when we bear others' burdens, we are being Christ-like. You think of how many times Jesus went into situations... And all he did was bear other people's heartaches. He walks out of a town and he sees a widow. And she's getting ready to bury her son. And Jesus stops the funeral. And he raises that son. He goes to the grave of Lazarus. And it says Jesus wept and he groaned. A woman comes and touches Jesus' garment. And he says, who touched me? He was always Bearing other people's burdens. So when you and I do that, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. We are becoming Christ-like. Now, in particular, the law of Christ, Jesus said this, I give you a new commandment that as I loved you, love one another. That is also the law of Christ. James 2.8 says this, If you fulfill the royal law, Love your neighbor as yourself. You will do well. So this is what Paul is getting at here. So we know what it means to bear another's burdens. We know what is accomplished now by bearing one another's burdens. You see, the Galatian Christians had stopped bearing each other's burdens. They had gone back to the law. They thought that they were pious. They thought they were better than other people because they were doing all these things. And Paul said, don't become conceited, provoking one another, devouring one another, and envying one another. But when you and I are bearing burdens, we're just the opposite. Why is this command reciprocal? Well, I think verse 3 tells us why. The word for connects it, doesn't it? For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I, why does this need to be reciprocal? Why do I bear one another's burdens? Because I don't need to think too highly of myself. There's going to come a day when I need people to come alongside of me. There's going to come a day when, when, when somebody says, Patrick, how are your finances going? And I'm going to say, you know what? I need your help right now. Emotionally, I I may be going through a dark valley, loss of a loved one, loss of a friend. 
we're to bear one another because if any man thinks himself to be something, all you've done is deceived yourself. We all are going to need one another at differing times in our lives. So while restoring and bearing others' burdens, I must acknowledge that I too need the aid of others. When you are thinking yourself to be something, when in reality you are nothing but a sinner that's been saved by grace, all you've done is deceived yourself. And the greatest self-deception is pride. That's why he says, if any man thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he's deceived himself. It manifests itself in an attitude of superiority and a contempt for others. So let's end this teaching this morning. I am to restore. I am to be spiritual. I am to do it gentle. I'm to find people that have been overtaken, didn't plan the fault. I'm to bear each other's burdens. Now, how do I do this? I do it by verse 4, by self-examination. That's when I become gentle. That's when I bear others' others' burdens. Self-examination is our personal responsibility. So what does it mean to examine yourself? So let's just look at that for a second. Test ourselves, examine ourselves. So let's just look at the Greek word. It means to prove something under real life circumstances. This is an objective test. Examine myself. And I have an objective standard by which I can tell if I'm walking in the Spirit or not, don't I? One, the life of Jesus, the law of Christ, and secondly, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Those are the tools that I use for self-examination. I don't compare myself with others because I can always find somebody who's a little bit worse than I am. Can't we? Well, I'm glad I'm not like so-and-so. Well, at least I didn't do this. That's not our standard. Examine yourself. And Paul has given us some objective standards here to see how I deal with things in real-life situations. The word to examine was also used for metals to put it in a fire to see if it was genuine. Are we displaying Christ-like character in restoring other people? Are we bearing other people's loads with meekness, kindness, long-suffering, and self-control? Are we concerned about other people's infirmities and their spiritual weaknesses? Do we just indulge in our own spiritual liberties without considering a weaker brother? Are we patient? Are we eager to share with other people in their difficult circumstances? Those are ways that we can say, I am examining myself. Why are we to examine ourselves? Verse 5 again tells us, doesn't it? The word for Why do I examine myself? For I am going to have to bear my own load. This is a different idea from Galatians 6.2. The idea of this verse is I examine myself because I am responsible for my actions. And all, not only am I responsible for them, I am going to have to give an account for them. So I'd better be examining myself Because one day I'm going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of what I've done. My shortcomings, 
but also my assurances. Then I will have boasting, it says in verse 4, examine myself, and you will have boasting or rejoicing yourself and alone. So I'm also to do self-examination for the positive side. I examine myself, and I say, Lord, thank you that my motives were right, and my virtues were right. And I know, God, one day, nobody else may have ever seen what I've done, but God, I know that one day I will get a reward. So that's why we do self-examination, both the positive and the negative. So I want to summarize this morning with seven points. And if you're following the outline, my last question is, after your self-examination, which summary statement do you need to practice this week? So let's make this practical. Summary point number one, spiritual people are restoring others. They're bringing people back to a state of usefulness in the body of Christ. Is that something that you could say that you are actively trying to do? Is there somebody that you can give a phone call to this week, a text message to? To be spiritual means being Christ-like. Are you compassionate? Are you patient? Are you long-suffering? Are you speaking the truth to people but speaking it in love? In meekness, this is the only effective way to restore someone. Do you point out people's faults and mistakes with criticism? Or do you offer helpful suggestions that will help them along the way? Number three, we all need to realize no matter how spiritual you may think you are, in reality, we are all nothing without Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Four, by mutually carrying weights and caring for others, we are showing the unity of Christ that he has brought and fulfilled his royal law to love one another. Feign sympathy with an air of superiority is nothing but self-deception. Number six, true self-examination will produce humility and it will also give you assurance. The last summary statement, each one of us is responsible and will be held accountable for our motives and our actions. The more keenly aware I am of this truth will be directly correspondent to ways that I restore and bear other people's burdens. Let me say that again. When I know that I'm going to be accountable for my own words and my own actions, my own attitudes, that will affect the way I treat other people with sympathy and compassionate patience. So those are our summary statements. And so I hope this morning you can go through this list and ask yourself, am I a spiritual person? How do I react when other people are overtaken in a fault? Am I critical? Am I judgmental? Do I get a feeling of superiority? Am I willing to reach out to that person? Am I willing to receive help from others? Or am I too proud? Will I carry somebody else's burden and go out of my way to find somebody that I can be a blessing to? And lastly, am I doing consistent self 
examination of my own spiritual life. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the practicality of the Holy Spirit written scripture that we can apply to our lives today. And I pray, Father, that we will be a church